you truly are a good, good father. Lord, your love amazes us. <laughs> we are loved by you. That's, that's what you do. That's who we are. Your, your ones, your chosen ones, those that you chose to pour out your love upon. Lord, your love amazes us. Your love never fails. In spite of the fact, Lord, that our love for you so often falls so far short of what you deserve. But your love never fails. The love that you demonstrated for us that while we were yet sinners, Jesus, you died for us. You took our sin upon yourself. You took our guilt, our shame. In exchange, gave us your righteousness, gave us peace, gave us hope, <laughs> gave us the ability to love, to love one another, to love you. And Lord, our desire is to grow in that. To understand understand you more, understand who you are. And Lord, would you do that work in us tonight as we study your word? Would you just open our minds and our hearts even more as we open your word tonight? Bless our time together here. You are so good. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good evening. Ah, he is good. Amen. Ah. Well, how you doing? Awesome. Take out your Bibles, if you would, please. We find ourselves tonight in 2 Kings. If you're just joining us tonight, uh, for the first time, we go through the Old Testament on Wednesday evenings, and we've been uh, going through and studying in, in, in 2 Kings the last several weeks. We find ourselves Tonight we're in. Uh, we'll be starting in chapter eight, but kind of give a little background. The last last week we were talking about the fact that that the the children of Israel, the northern tribe of Israel, they were surrounded by their enemies. As we go back into into chapter even six, um, it tells us that the king of of Syria, Aram, had surrounded the city and they were starving them out. There was a time of famine, but there was also now they had besieged the city. And it had gotten to the point, it was so bad that it tells us in, again, chapter 6, verse 25, that a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver, and a fourth the cab of dove's dung was for five shekels of silver, just trying to get anything that they could to eat. They'd even resorted to cannibalism, as we had talked about last week. And in the, in the midst of that, in the middle of this absolutely desperate situation, Elisha proclaims that the next day, 24 hours later, that, that flour and barley would be so plentiful you could buy all you needed for a shekel. And one of the responses that somebody had said when they heard that was, even if God were to open up the, the windows of heaven, is that even possible that that could happen? Doubting, doubting God's hand. And we talked last week about the fact that so often we give God a few options. We give him you know, four or five things saying, all right, Lord, I, I need your help. I need you to step in in this. And here's, here's three or four different ways that you could do that. And we talked about instead of giving God multiple choice, give him a blank sheet of paper and just say, you fill it in, you do it. Because no one would have believed how God was going to do it when he was going forward. We talk about that in Habakkuk when God said, even if I told you what I was going to do, you wouldn't believe it. 
And sure enough, the army that had surrounded them, God sent the, this sound of rushing horses and chariots coming, and they just took off running to the point where they were so scared for their own lives, they started throwing their equipment and shedding as extra clothing as they were running away. They left all of their food, all of their provisions, everything. Four lepers go sneaking out into there and find all of this, come back into the city, tell them, and it happened just like God said the next day flour, barley, anything that you can imagine for sale. And again, we talked about you know how God answers in ways that we would never imagine. And I, I set that up because after service last week, somebody came up and shared with me, you know, God still does that. Because <laughs> I think at times we can read this and we can say, does God still work in that kind of way? And he does. She shared with me that she had recently come back from being gone for an extended period of time. And when she got back, her property was completely overrun with grass and weeds. And before she got notice from the HOA or whatever, wherever that was, and she was like, how am I going to take care of this? I can't pay a landscaper to come in and take care of this. I don't have the money to do that. And I physically cannot take care of that. God, you're going to have to do something miraculous. The next morning, a knock on the door. One of the neighbors from down the road away said, you know, I have a whole bunch of sheep and they need a place to graze. Could they, could they just graze on your property? <laughs> that wasn't on the multiple choice sheet, she said. <laughs> it's just like, God, you're going to have to do this. And he does. And I just I wanted to share that with you because I thought that was awesome. I said, man, I wish I had talked to you before the service. Remind me next week. And she reminded me to tell you that piece. But again... God works and he provides. And as we now step into chapter eight, we looked at this a little bit last week, but I want to go back and look at it a little bit more in depth. Chapter eight begins, now Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life saying, arise and go with your household and sojourn wherever you can sojourn for the Lord has called for a famine and it will even come on the land for seven years. So we jump back before the famine started. Elisha tells this woman that we were introduced to a couple of chapters back that she needs to get out of town. She needs to get out of, of Israel for a, for a time because this famine is coming. He warns her that it's coming. And verse 2 says, So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. And she went with her household and sojourned into the land of the Philistines for seven years. At the end of seven years, the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, and she went out to appeal to the king for her house and her field, because others had moved in and kind of taken over where she, she lived, her property. Now, verse 4, the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, please relate to me all the great things that Elisha has done. As he was relating to the king how he had restored to life the one who was dead, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and for her field. And Gehazi said, my lord, O king, this is the woman and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. When the king asked the woman, she related, to, related it all to him. So the king appointed her for her, a certain officer saying, restore all that was hers and all the produce of the field from the day that she left the land, even until now. Here again, we see God's providential hand, his almighty hand working in the lives of his people. And we see again how, how this, this goes through. He knows what we need. 
He knows when we need it. He's not going to tell us to go do something and then leave us hanging. Here she leaves and obeys the word of the Lord that was given to her through Elisha, and she goes. When she comes back, somebody's moved into her property, taken all of her stuff. What am I going to do? And we see that God's providential hand then again moving in this provision as he's now hearing this story from Gehazi. He says, tell me about this guy, Elisha. Tell me some more stories about him. And so he's relating this to him, telling him all about it. And then how, first of all, if you'll remember, if you weren't with us, but if you remember back, she was, her and her husband were advanced in years. They didn't have a child. Elisha first said, you're going to have a son. And she was like, don't tell me that. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to have any false hope. But sure enough, she conceived, bore a son. But then later on, as he was growing up, he was still a little guy, but he went out to the field to see his dad, and he something happened to his head. We don't know what it was, but when he got back home, he died in her arms. And she sent then and went and got Elisha. Elisha came back, and he, he, he was raised from the dead. So there, he's relating this story, and as he's relating the story, here she walks in. Coincidence? I don't think so. God doesn't work in coincidences. And here God's hand, again, moving through all of this. Perfect timing. And here he comes in, and we see the provision that he had. Now, one of the things as I've been kind of reading through this and thinking through this, God's provision is different in different circumstances. He provides for each of us in different ways, even though it's a a similar circumstance that we might be going through. Remember back another famine, back in Elijah's time, when he went to the widow house with the oil and the flour that stayed every day. They only had a little enough to make one cake left. But as long as the famine went, every day there was enough oil and flour to make enough for that day, that day, that day. And it lasted until the famine ran out. God provided miraculously there through that. But here's something totally different. He says, he says, give her the word to get out of here. Go somewhere else during this time. And God works in different ways. God provides in different ways. His hand as it comes through and at the end of everything, it's different. My wife is meeting with a group of ladies for, for a Bible study, and she's looking at the story of Ruth, and we've been talking about that as she's preparing for it. And we look at a situation there. Again, another famine. This time, uh, Naomi's family leaves, not by the word of the Lord. They just feel like, okay, we better go see if we can find better place somewhere else. So they leave against what God's prob- probable will was for them. Bad things happen. Her her husband, her sons die. She comes back with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And then again, God, through his miraculous, providential hand, moving, Ruth Ruth meets Boaz, and, and most of you know the story. And again, he provides through that. And my point is, again, here we look at three different famines, three different ways of handling it, but the children of God, he has his hand, and he's guiding, and he's moving everywhere through it. It's just, it's, it's just a beautiful picture of, again, God's providential, all-powerful hand working on our behalf, even though we don't see it all the time. Even though we don't understand what it is that he's doing, he is a good, good father, amen? <laughs> so we see that this takes place then. Verse 7 says, Then Elisha, and we're going to shift now, came to Damascus. Now that's in Syria. That's where the, the king of Aram is. And we see now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, was sick. And it was told to him saying, the man of God has come here. This is an enemy of Israel. And if there was public enemy number one, 
in Damascus, it's Elisha. If you'll remember back when we were looking at that, the, the king of Aram, when he's coming against Israel, every time that he's got a plan that he thinks is foolproof, Israel's one step ahead of him. The king of Israel's one step ahead of him. And so he's thinking there's a mole inside of, inside of his camp. And they said, no, it's not, it's not one of us. It's, it's the fact that Elisha knows even the words that you speak in your bedroom, God's telling them. And so the problem is Elisha, not us. So this Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, he tries to go out and capture Elisha, and Elisha gets through. So public enemy number one, and he goes to Damascus. And notice, I think this is great, the man of God has come here. (laughs) That's how he's known. Didn't say, hey, Elisha's in town. Said the man of God is in town. And he's not hiding either. Obviously, the, the word gets to the king. And that challenges me because Elisha, knowing that he's a, he's a marked man probably in that area, he just goes and he fully trusts the Lord. Psalm 118 says, The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. And can I tell you, the first man on that list that I shouldn't trust in is this one. (laughs) Better to trust in the Lord than to trust in man. He goes on, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust ourselves, than to trust armies, than to trust anything else taking refuge in the Lord. Guys, the safest place that you can be is in the center of God's will for you. That is the safest place you can be. People ask all the time, like when we're going to Israel or these different places, aren't you scared? Not a bit. (laughs) Not a bit. Because I know that my good, good father is watching out for me. And when my time comes to go, I'm going. And the safest place I can be is in the center of his will. If it's his will for me to be there and I decide not to and I'm going to hide out in my closet at home, I'm safer there than I am in my closet at home in the center of God's will. And here we see Elisha in the center of God's will for him. The king said to Haziel, take a gift in your hand and go meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him saying, will I recover from this sickness? Interesting. This man who wanted him dead a couple chapters ago, now he's facing his own mortality, his own death, concerned if he's going to live. Now he's saying, would you take a gift to him? Take, take, take a bunch of stuff to him and see if we can't get some good news out of this guy if I'm going to recover from this sickness. So Haziel went to meet him and took a gift in his hand, even every kind of good thing of Damascus, 40 camel loads. And he came and stood before him and said, your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to you. Will I recover from this sickness? Then Elisha said to him, go say to him, you will surely recover, but the Lord has shown me that he will certainly die. And he fixed his gaze steadily on him until he was ashamed. So Elisha tells him, go tell the king that he will recover, but I'm telling you, the Lord's already showed me that he's going to die. And then Elisha just stares at Heziel until it says that he was ashamed. And then it says the man of God wept. Elisha starts weeping. Heziel said, why does my Lord weep? 
And then he answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the sons of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire, and their young men you will kill with the sword, and their little ones you will dash in pieces, and their women with child you will rip up. But Haziel said, but what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing or a crazy thing, amazing thing? Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you will be king over Aram. I'll finish this out and then come back. So verse 14, so he departed from Elisha and returned to his master and said to him, what did Elisha say to you? And he answered, he told me that you would surely recover. On the following day, he took the cover and dipped it in water and spread it on his face so that he died and Haziel became king in his place. So Haziel then we see as it finishes out here, he goes back and says, yeah, he said you're going to recover. The next day he takes a blanket, soaks it in water, puts it over the king's face and suffocates him. Now, I want to go back because it says that he fixed his gaze steadily on him and he was ashamed. Something in that conversation, the look that Elisha was giving him went right down into his soul and it says that he was ashamed. God knew and through the prophecy that Elisha told him, he knew his heart. He knew Haziel's heart. He knew what his intentions were. And he knew what it was going to result in down the road. That he was going to take the life of the king. That he was going to then do all of these horrible things. God knew that. And I want to go here now where we've kind of started out because going back to what we initially talked about, how God's providential hand in things, that, take, that gives us great comfort. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make, if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wind, the wings of the dawn, I will dwell in the remotest part of the sea. Even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when yet there was not one of them. God knows every day. God knows every moment. Even before, it's telling us, before there was one. God has placed his hand on us. He, has, he goes on to say, how precious are your thoughts toward me, O God. How vast the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. 
when we read through that, I, this is just a personal challenge, I guess, for every one of us. How does that make you feel? Does that bring you great comfort that God knows everything about you? That he knows every step you're going to take, that he knows what's ahead of you, that, he, that his, as we talked about, his hand goes before you? Or does the fact that he knows every thought and intention of our heart, does that bring you discomfort? <laughs> Does that, does, that, does that make you uncomfortable? Does that make you feel, even as Haziel did, ashamed as we, as we look at that? And I want to, I guess, at the point here where God knows everything in our lives, he knows all of the steps beforehand. We talked a little bit about this this past weekend, God's sovereignty versus our free will. The dangerous side of that, and I've talked to people who said that, is that, well, God's got it all together. Did Haziel have any choice? I mean, God said that he was going to do all of these things. Did he have a choice? Yes, he did. Just because God knew the choices he was going to make did not mean that the choices were still not his to make. And I challenge all of us today, because God, again, knows the intentions of our heart. God knows what is the intention of your heart right now, what it is tomorrow that you desire to do, the things that you have even put in place that right now, maybe you're being convicted. The Holy Spirit is saying, that's not right. That is wrong. That goes against God's will for you. And you know it's wrong. Don't move forward in those steps thinking, well, it's already done. God already knows it. That Holy Spirit check inside of you is that love of God reaching out to you saying, turn from that right now. Turn and come back. You don't have to continue down that path. And if you're at all wondering what that might be, Psalm 139 finishes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. If you're at all wondering if these things that are ahead of you are the will of the Lord or not, His desire is to reveal that to you. It's not to play some cosmic game of hide-and-seek and you figure it out and we'll deal with it at the end. No, his desire for you is to walk a holy life, to, to walk in, in his righteousness, and he'll reveal that to you. We look at this here, and he had an opportunity. I, I believe it as, as sure as I'm sitting here that he could have fallen down and repented at that moment. But instead, he walked forward. He went forward with the plans, and we're going to see that the very things that Elisha said he's going to do to the children of Israel, he will do. We see already he takes that step. God knew his intention. Elisha knew his intention because God revealed it to him. He looked at him. He gave him that opportunity to turn. Instead, he went forward with it. And it says that he became king in his place. He's going to reign for 41 years. And it's going to be, again, a reign of, of <laughs> a horrible reign. Well, verse 16 says, Now in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat being then the king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, became king. So for a while of about five years, Jehoshaphat will co-reign with his son, Jehoram. Now this is going to get 
a little confusing. <laughs> we jump back and forth. We have, as we've gone back, the kings of Judah, the kings of Israel. The, tri- the Israel is split in, into two tribes. The, the southern tribes are the, t- is the tribe of Judah. Now the northern is referred to as Israel. They have separate kings. And we see here that in the, in the fifth year of Jehoram in the north, the son of Ahab, Jehoshaphat being the reign of Judah, Jehoram now his son, co-reigns with him. So we have two, Joram and Jehoram, they use those names interchangeably. So we have two Jehorams, one on each end, <laughs> one on each side. The, the Interesting how this fits, Jehoram in the north followed his brother Ahaziah. We're going to see in a few verses, Ahaziah will then follow Jehoram in the south. It's going to be a little confusing, hang with it, but just none of them are good kings. They're all bad kings. Jehoshaphat was a good king. But the point, I'm setting this up for us here because Jehoshaphat, we've seen this. He was a good king. Overall, he, he followed the Lord. He loved God and, and he did, but he made one big mistake and we'll see that here in just a second. Speaking of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, he was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done. So instead of following his father's lead and following Yahweh, the true and living God, it says that he followed the ways of the north. They were were worshiping Baal and Asherah and these these other gods. And it says that he followed their way, not his father's way. Notice it says here, though, for the daughter of Ahab became his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. We mentioned this before, that Jehoshaphat's big mistake that he made was to try to make an alliance and things work out with Ahab in the north and had his son marry Ahab's daughter. And instead of that idea that, okay, well, we'll make, we'll make them good through this thing. We see the exact opposite happening. Bible is very clear. Do not be unequally yoked with someone else. We can think all the time, well, I'm going to, I'll be the one that will lead them to the Lord. I'll be this. And, and getting into a relationship with somebody who's not a believer, the Bible says, do not do that. Don't trust in your own understanding. Follow the Lord. Lean on him. He will make your paths straight. If you're in a relationship like that, get out right now. Trust the Lord. It's okay. You, they, they come to the Lord. Great. Then you, then you can continue that relationship. But here we see what happens. Notice it says, for the daughter of Ahab became his wife. She was an ungodly influence to him and turned him away. And I want to take a second and talk about this because husbands, wives, don't underestimate the influence you have on your spouse. Here we see an ungodly influence in what happens there, but the Bible is clear as to how we can be a godly example for one another. Peter, after talking about the fact that Christ is our example, he says in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, in the same way, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they will be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. The godly influence of a wife on her husband. And he goes on to talk about that godly influence. How, wives, you can be that godly influence for your husband. 
and I'm just going to read it and not look up just so you don't come after me afterwards and say, you were, you were singling me out. I'll let the Holy Spirit do that. <laughs> By the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not merely be external, braiding your hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Peter tells us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, ladies, wives, that the way that you get your husband to, to understand and follow a godly example is not... <laughs> It's, it's through a gentle and quiet spirit. I love the fact that he uses here Sarah and Abraham as an example. Because Abraham, though he was a man who loved God and, and followed God, and God called him a friend, and, and this whole thing, a man of faith, great faith, a couple of times, not once, but twice, had this idea as they went somewhere else to tell the king that, he said to Sarah, tell him you're my sister. Because if, they, if he knows we're married, he's going to kill me. Now, I'm sure she probably brought up that that's not a good idea. But she submitted to her husband and trusted the Lord. And God, both times, stepped in and, 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 and saved that. And through that, what a godly example it's used here. Now, just to think that us guys, we get off. No, he goes on, verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, you ladies might be saying, well, how come we got six verses and you guys only get one? Because we need, we need it broken down really simple. <laughs> we, need it, we need it just given to us straight. And... He says, husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. Guys, our role as husbands is to understand our wives. Understand what they need. Understand what they like, what they don't like. Live in an understanding way. Understanding that God made them different. I can't tell you how many times in counseling that especially when I'm talking to the guy, He's like, he's like, well, she just, she just doesn't get it. She's supposed to blah, 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 blah. I'm like, dude, you don't get it. <laughs> you need to understand her. You need to understand what she needs. And, and as we do this and as we walk in this harmoniously, it's a beautiful picture. And, and the, the way that, that God, he lays it out for us, he goes, to sum up, all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So many times we, we expect each other to do the other roles and all of this kind of stuff. Guys, let's just stick with what God lays out for us and to be that influence, that godly influence for one another. 
And by the way, your children are watching. They're learning. They're picking up those things, those tendencies and understanding. You want, guys, you want your sons to be godly fathers or godly husbands? You be a godly husband. Be that example. Wives, same thing with daughters. And, and we see the, the, what can happen if, if the other happens and it, t- it leads to nothing but disaster back in 2 Kings. However, it says, verse 19, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant, since he had promised him to give a lamp to him through his sons always. So God holds off his, his judgment on, on Judah, even though here is this king going following the ways of the north. In his days, this is now after Jehoshaphat has passed off on the scene. He's now ruling alone. It says, in his days, Edom revolted from under the hand of Judah and made a king over themselves. David had conquered Edom. They were subject to Judah to this point. But now they're seeing this change in leadership. And so they revolt and place a king over themselves. Then Joram crossed over to Zaire and all his chariots with him, and he arose by night and struck the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of his chariots, but his army fled to their tents. So they go to attack, they go to fight, backfires on them, Edom gets them surrounded, but they were able to escape and get away. So Edom revolted against Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. And the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? That's all we see here with this. Is verse, next verse tells us that he passes off of the scene. 2 Chronicles chapter 21 tells us that how, how wicked his heart had become. He killed all of his brothers. And trying to, to wipe this out in 2 Chronicles chapter 21. So Joram, verse 24, tells us that he slept with his fathers, he died, was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Ahaziah, his son, became king in his place. So again, in the north, Ahaziah followed by Joram or Jehoram. Here we see in the south, Joram or Jehoram followed by Ahaziah. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel up north, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king in Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri the king, the daughter of Ahab, as we mentioned. He walked in the way of the house of Ahab, following his, his father and his, his grandma, or his mom, I'm sorry, and did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab had done, because he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. Then he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Haziel, king of Aram, at Ramoth Gilead. And the Arameans wounded Joram. So they're in a battle. He goes and joins his brother-in-law, and he's wounded. So the king Joram returned to heal in Jezreel of the wounds which the Arameans had afflicted on him at Ramah when he fought against Haziel, king of Aram. Following all this? Kind of got it? All right. Then Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. So they're back together again here, down in Jezreel. Chapter 9, Now Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Gird up your loins and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. 
When you arrive there, search out Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Now here we have another Jehoshaphat, not the same Jehoshaphat who's king. So we got two, two uh, Jehorams, we got two Ahaziahs, we got two, two Jehoshaphats. But that's the end of the confusion. Go in and bid him arise from among his brothers and bring him into an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not wait. He tells now, Elisha tells one of his servants to go down and anoint this man, Jehu, who's one of the captains of the army, anoint him king now over Israel. And just as a, a, a little jumping off the side here, just a moment, if you'll remember, if you were with us back in 1 Kings chapter 19, when Elijah went running away, remember when, Je, when Jezebel threatened to kill him and he went running away and the, after a while, you know, he heard the still small voice of the Lord and he told him to get, basically get back in the game. Chapter 19, verse 15 of 1 Kings says, So the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel, king over Aram, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meloah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. So God gave Elijah three things to do. Have you ever felt in your life that God has given you so many things to do that you're so far behind right now you're never going to die? You ever felt that way? <laughs> well, here we see three things that God gave Elijah to do. He only did one of them. He anointed Elisha. Passing the mantle then on to Elisha, we see Elisha then back in a little bit ago telling Haziel that he's going to be king. And here we see now he's going to go anoint Jehu king over Israel, and he sends somebody else to do that. And I, I love that because here we see that being passed on, the work of the Lord continuing to be passed on. Sometimes we think, man, if I don't get this done, it's not going to get done. Where God then raises up others and brings them around us, and we pour into them, and God then does the work through others. And we see that happening even here. So the young man, verse 4, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth-Gilead. When he came, behold, the captains of the army were sitting, and he said, I have a word for you, O captain. And Jehu said, For which one of us? And he said, For you, O captain. He arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. You shall strike the house of Ahab your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants and prophets and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every man, every male person, both bond and free in Israel. Just as Elijah had said, the Lord had said that, that through that Elijah, that that would take place. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. The dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. So he went and did what he was supposed to, and Elisha said, as soon as you give him that message, get out of town. And so he did. Now Jehu came out to the servants of his master, 
And one said to him, is all well? So he anointed him. He poured this oil over him. He walks out. He's got oil all over him. And they said, is everything okay? What did this mad fellow come to you and tell you? And he said to them, you know very well the man and his talk. And they said, it is a lie. Tell us now. We didn't hear. We, didn't, we don't know what's going on. And he said, thus and thus he said to me, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then he hurried, and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. So Jehu, verse 14, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, was defending Ramoth-Gilead against Haziel, the king of Aram. So there's the battle going on against Haziel. And Jehu now brings his group that's with him now, and he's coming up against him from a different direction. The king of Joram had returned to Jezreel to be healed of his wounds, which the Arameans had inflicted on him, when he fought with Haziel, king of Aram. So Jehu said, If this is your mind, then let no one escape or leave the city to go tell it to Jezreel. So Jehu tells him, If you're with me, don't let anybody escape to get and tell Joram my plans. Then Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram was lying there. Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. And we see God bringing them together and working all of these things together in this as well. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. So he sees off in the distance this group of soldiers coming at a pretty rapid pace. And Joram, the king, said, Take a horseman and send him to meet them and let him say, is it peace? We're going to see that word used several times here in the next few verses. Is it peace? Send them out. Find out if they're coming in peace or if, there's, if, there's, if they have other intentions. So the horseman went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What have you to do with peace? Turn behind me. And the watchman reported, The messenger came to them, but he didn't return. So he comes. Jehu says, What do you have to do with peace? Fall in line behind me. He does. Then he sent out a second horseman who came with them and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What have you to do with peace? Turn behind me. The watchman reported, He came even to them, and he did not return. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. <laughs> He's a crazy driver. So they, the next messenger falls in behind him, and he's coming at a rapid pace. Then Joram said, Get ready. And they made his chariot ready. So the king now, Joram, the king of Israel, and Ahaziah, the king of Judah, went out, each with his chariot. And they went out to meet Jehu, and they found him in the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Back in chapter 21, the irony of this is, if you'll remember, Naboth had a vineyard. Ahab wanted the vineyard. Naboth wouldn't sell him the vineyard. So Jezebel, he goes home and he's crying. He's, oh, Naboth won't sell me his vineyard. And Jezebel says, I'll get you your vineyard. And so she had Naboth killed. Remember, if you were with us through that study? And that's what triggered this last part, that the, the, the curse that came against Ahab. And again, here they are. They meet in the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. When Joram saw Jehu, he said, is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, what peace? so long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. So Joram reigned about and fled. He turns his chariot around. He starts taking off. And he says to Ahaziah, the king of Judah, there is treachery, O Ahaziah. 
Jehu drew his bow at his full strength and shot Joram between the arms right through his back. The arrow went through his heart and he sank in his chariot. Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his officer, take him and cast him into the property of the field of Naboth the Jezreelite. For I remember when you and I were riding together after Ahab his father, that the Lord laid this oracle against him. Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his son, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this property, said the Lord. Now then, take and cast into the property according to the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah saw the king of Judah, the king of Judah saw this, he fled by the way of the garden house, and Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him too in the chariot. So they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is in Eblium. But he fled to Megiddo and he died there. Then his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his grave with his fathers in the city of David. Now in the eleventh year of Joram, Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah became king over Judah. I'm not going to be able to finish this. So we'll stop right there. Um, kind, of a, kind of a grisly scene we going, see going on here, but God's judgment comes. And one of the, one of the things that I had heard that, about one of the commentators that said that sometimes we think that God's arrows are delayed, but never make a mistake. They are always right on target. <laughs> and though they might think that, hey, I can outrun this or I can do this, there will never be peace unless we have peace with God. They, he kept on saying, is it peace? Is it peace? And his response was, how can there be peace? So long as this continues on, all of these harlotries of, of Jezebel and all of these other things, there can never be peace. The world can try to make peace and, and we can try to have peace in these different areas. Guys, we can never have peace until we have peace with God. And then when we have peace with God, we have the peace of God. Amen? And, and so we'll pick it up there next week. I wanted to get a little bit further, but I, we're, we're running out of time. So let's pray. <laughs> Lord, thank you. As I want to go back, Lord, I want, as we began tonight, thank you for your good hand on us, your providential hand of love on us, your children. Lord, it is amazing beyond us to even fathom that your thoughts towards us are many, <laughs> more than we could ever tabulate, and they're good thoughts. And you know, our, you know our heart. You know our desires. You know even our intentions, Lord. And our desire as followers of you, those who have, been, who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, our desire, Lord, is to please you in every aspect, every regard. So Lord, if there is anything in us that is not pleasing to you, would you show that to us? And we turn from those things now, Lord, and we turn back to you because you are a good, good father. And Lord, your heart and your desire for us is only good. Lord, in those situations that we might find ourselves in now that, that seem desperate, that seem difficult, Lord, we trust you. Lord, we give you that blank sheet. Lord, you fill it in. You do what you desire to do because God, it's way beyond us. It's way better than we could ever imagine. So Lord, have your way. Thank you for this time tonight, Lord, and we pray that you would go before us as we navigate the rest of this week following you, each step as you lead. 
And Lord, that we might be that godly example. Lord, that we would be a, a godly influence to our spouses, to our children, to our co-workers, to our neighbors. Everywhere we go, we might shine your light. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.